Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about the movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. You can find our podcast at Try Love Podcast on Twitter, and you can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. Uh, again, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. And joining us as a very special guest for today's episode is returning guest Jenny Ackerson. Thank you for being here, Jenny. Thank you so much, fam. Um, I am, I guess, on Twitter sometimes at, at Ackerson Jenny, I think. Can people find you on Letterboxd at the same at? I have no idea what that at is, but my name is uh, my profile on all social media if you really wanted to. It's good branding. It's good branding. Yeah, it is. It's consistent. Today, we're going to be talking about a film that uh, I think was a first go for everybody here. And again, like all these episodes we've been doing in quarantine, not actually movies that we saw at the Trilon Cinema. Um, but uh, I'll let Aaron do a quick summary, uh, introduction and summary of the movie we'll be talking about. Aaron? Yeah, we're going to be talking about Rebels of the Neon God, 1992 film directed by Tsai Ming Lang. Uh, it's his first full-length feature film. He is a Taiwanese uh, film director. Um, this film takes a look at the aimless lives of several uh, young men and women living in Taipei. Um, it stars Lee Kang Sheng as uh, school student Sao Kang. Um, he lives unhappily with his parents, feels trapped uh, by the, you know his, his kind of general lifestyle, but mostly his family and his schoolwork. Uh, it also stars Chen Chao Jung and uh, Jen Cheng Bin as Atse and Ah Ping. Um, they are two young men who. Uh, kind of spend most of their time either stealing coins from phone booths uh, at nighttime in order to get quarters, in order to kind of uh, fuel uh, their other habit, which is uh, spending time at the local arcade. Uh, and then last but not least, it stars uh, Wang Yu Wen uh, as Akwe, which uh, she's a young woman working at a skating rink. And their lives become very loosely intertwined when Atze, uh, giving Akwe uh, a ride home on his motorcycle, smashes uh, Sao Kang's father's driver's side mirror during an altercation at a traffic light. Um, it's kind of a loose summary, but this film is very, um, I don't want to say like aimless, but it's very much kind of a vibe movie. Um, again, it takes a look at uh, these young people and how their lives are kind of, um, how they feel without any sort of steady occupation and how they live kind of day to day. I think that's a good summary. I think your observation that it is um, somewhat slower moving is apt and completely accurate. Uh, and I think it's like intentional as well. We can get into that later. But one of the things I want to call out first, uh, again, this being my, at least my first run of this movie, it, it's on the Criterion channel. Uh, so I'm assuming that it has some some notoriety and and uh, and popularity in you know in cinema. But I just want to call out that specifically letterboxd but pretty much all of the summaries that i read about this movie before uh 
before seeing it are actually kind of terrible descriptors of what the movie actually ends up being. I don't know if anybody else had that feeling, but like Letterboxd describes what happens between the two ostensibly main characters, Xiao Kang and um and La or, or Atse, as uh that Xiao Kang falls in with the Yeah, like, I noticed of, that too. The sort of like uh miscreant group um of Ping and say uh, uh, and and Kuei. And that's really not what happens. They sort of like orbit each other and like like a little I don't know, like a little demonic god uh uh Shao Kang does actually like he orbits and and is just like annoying a little bit of a nagging presence throughout the movie for for uh Sei's character until finally like you know the, the events transpire that sort of changes the character of Sei um I don't know it, I, the way that this movie was positioned before me did not line up with what happened in the movie to me it like that might just be a marketing thing. Uh, but it's one of the first things that rang to me right after I finished the movie was like, this is not the movie I read about. Anybody else feel that way? Um, so I watched this, unfortunately, on Amazon. Uh, and Amazon's description was not only inaccurate to the events of the um, film, there were some actual like uh, grammatical strangeness, if not outright incorrectness. And so I started to think, and this is pure supposition on my part, that there might be um, localization or translation um, difficulties that contributed to some of the um, confusion that you're talking about. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily true for all descriptions, but it certainly felt true for the Amazon description. So that's why I kind of, I wonder if that's not something that was more common to the way that this movie gets talked about, which is interesting and kind of a shame. Yeah, it is. I think it's the reason that I insinuate that it might've been a marketing thing too, is that imagine selling like the events of this movie to a mass audience. And it'd probably be pretty tough to boil it down. Honestly. I mean, I, I, when I'm watching movies and when I'm looking at them before and after I've seen them, I'm, imagining how like the audience for this movie must have seen it and how it must have gotten like a wider audience and it is pretty tough i think criterion's description comes a little bit closer to what the movie actually is um but anyway i don't know it was just an observation uh that i felt impacted how i thought about the movie because i thought it was going to be sort of a uh you know a spiraling a downward spiral of you know moral decay uh set amidst inner city taipei and it's only only in part that aaron yeah, uh, I think part of it might be that that uh, Lee Kang Shang is kind of uh, he's kind of the director's like main actor. Um, uh, Tsai Ming Wang reuses a lot of actors over his films in the way that a lot of directors do, uh, but Lee Kang Shang has been in every single one of his films, um, usually in a, a pretty central role. So I think there's maybe a natural tendency to try and define this film around that that character. Um, I think that character is kind of the central character of the film, despite not maybe being the number one protagonist, but I think thematically his journey is kind of what the film is getting at. So I think there's, yeah, maybe a bit of a, a intent there to try and to use that character to, to anchor how you describe the film, but it does come off wrong sometimes, I think. Yeah. Uh, I was going to just raise the, like the movie, at least in his positioning sets up two sub, sort of like disparate characters, uh, Xiao Kang and, uh, say as like, I'd say is, is the, um, punk he's, you know, that he's ripping off arcades and phone booths left and right, uh, to make a living. And then it funny, funny enough says that he works at a phone company or a telephone company. And then, um, 
And uh, Xiao Kang is a student who's, you know, dropping out, he's failing, he's disappointing his parents and all that. It draws like sort of a hazy line between the two. And I wanted to know how people felt about that characterization early in the movie. I was going to start with Jenny and then I saw her hand up, breaking my own rules, talking about Zencaster in interface while recording. But I wanted to see what Jenny, uh, I wanted to start with our opinions of that sort of characterization and how it develops throughout the movie. And I wanted to start with Jenny, if that's okay. Um, oh, sure. So, uh, I guess you, my first question is if we think all the cast, cause there's only maybe six people in build in the movie. If we think everyone except for the parents are considered titular characters, or if it's a force being put upon, like if we're looking at the, the gaze, if you will, from Lee Kangsheng's character, um, onto the, the other, like, rebellious lifestyle and passing judgment but also awe over it i i didn't really know how to interpret it when i was uh watching that do you mean like who are the rebels of the rebels of the neon god title essentially yeah the the title the the act of judgment because i guess um from reading about what the the neon god uh, nedza i think is just uh like a rebellious sort um right sure sure uh I'll let Harry go. I was going to I was going to chime in, but I'll let Harry no, go. No, you go ahead, Jason. Okay. Uh So, as the movie started, it clearly positions Atse and his friend Ping as um as the again, sort of the miscreants, the the bumabouts, they're, you know, uh, smashing uh, mirrors and just being generally mischievous, right? Uh not innocently so. But and and it positions Xiao Kang as sort of the not the inverse of that, but sort of somebody who could, like, he could be victimized. He could become part of that, um, of that lifestyle because he's sort of on the periphery of it. He has these run-ins and these brush-ins with, with, uh, say, with Atse. It eventually starts to shift that to where I started to feel, and I think the movie it, it wanted me to feel that Xiao Kang is sort of like the antagonist. I started to feel whenever he creeps into frame, just silently, he has so few lines in this movie. Most of it is just sort of like a maniacal cackling. Um, the, the longer it goes on, the more I felt like he was an antagonistic presence. I, I considered the rebels of the neon God title and sort of that, that framing as sort of, sort of sardonic, uh, and up like upending the expectation of that title. Um, uh, leveraging obviously like rebel without a cause as a, as a keystone piece uh, throughout the movie. It uses that sarcastically, almost sardonically uh, in, in my opinion, where I, where I felt, I guess my short answer is I felt that the, there are two definitions there, re- like, and, and the, the positioning of the rebels of the young God idea is that like they're, they're both rebellious or one of them is uh, rebellious to it, to a certain end. Um, uh, and and the other one, despite being could potentially be victimized by like the the uh, stereotypical societal rebel, is actually, I don't know, further down that line. That, like he believes more in in the rebellion. He he is internalized it more than Atse has. I I don't know if any of that makes sense to anybody, but I see a bunch of hands up. Yeah, I mean, I I I took this very much as a film about desire, about different types of desire, about uh, how the society, you know, specifically of Taiwan, I guess, being portrayed here, but also, you know, scare quotes here, like modern society, um, builds so much of the interactions that people have kind of from 
day-to-day lifestyle standpoint around the idea of desire, whether that's sexual desire or food or aspirations in life. I think that that one interesting thing is that it's kind of telling a, a pretty classic story of two opposing characters, right? Um, and that Kang desires the lifestyle that Atze leads. That's why he stalks him around, right? It's not only anger and vengeance at the fact that Atze destroyed his father's mirror. It's also this kind of jealousy, right? Like he sees him walking around with this young, attractive woman, uh, kind of going around doing what he wants to while he is stuck in this kind of, uh, you know, air quotes here, boring lifestyle, studying for school, uh, you know, living with his parents. Um, and the, I guess the important thing is that Atze doesn't desire the life that Kang has. But one thing he starts to realize at the end is that without that lifestyle, without that structured life, without a path, uh, you know, school, career, uh, for him to be funneled into, he's left completely aimless, right? He's left just kind of messing around with his friends, uh, you know, robbing from the arcade that he plays video games at. Um, and, you know, Kang also similarly doesn't see that uh, the lifestyle that he has, um, despite the fact that he doesn't like it, is kind of the only thing that, that might set him up for future success. Um, I was uh, really interested in, in Jenny's question sort of as a, a framing device for the entire movie because I think it, it's an interesting thing to consider where, um, like Jenny, you had asked, if all of these characters were titular, it, it sort of implies that they are, right? Because we open on um, Ah Ping and Ah Say instead of Sao Kang. Um, I think in spite of that, I, I interpreted... Um, Sao Kang as the POV character in this story. I think that that um, Sei and, and Ping act as um, a fascinating story that we're meant to become um, titillated by in a similar manner to um, Sao Kang himself looking uh, on the outside in by it. We're so, I think his um, sort of for lack of a better term, perverse fascination or obsession with them is meant to be paralleled with the way that we're meant to um, feel about their story, um, at least at first, until we get to see and humanize them a little bit better um, from the inside of it. Uh, But I I thought that that was a really interesting framing. Um, And it's also interesting uh, to go off of Jason's point that uh, Sao Kang eventually does become the antagonistic sinister presence that he is in the story. Uh, and I think I agree with Jason that, that he does feel that way. I mean, at, there's a point in this movie where he feels like the horror movie monster to me, like he buys that pop gun and then you're waiting for the pop, right. For, for like the second half of this movie is like, okay, when is he going to make his move with this gun? Uh, that doesn't actually end up ever coming into play, which I thought was uh, brilliant personally. Um, but, uh, but it's it's interesting that that the movie first positions um, Sao Kang as the person whose eyes we're seeing through, and then makes him antagonistic. It sort of implicates the audience in an interesting um, modernist way. Yeah, I saw. I didn't even think about the the neon god positing. Um, I, I guess until Jenny brought it up here, just because that's like we've said, that is something the movie sets up as almost like a duality of you're either uh, pursuing that or you're not. And in the end, I guess it felt like something that every character in the movie was striving for in their own way. Like it's, it's a one-sided uh, the, you know, the grass is greener type of story. Um, it made me think of desperately seeking Susan uh, in its own way. Um, Xiao Kong uh, looking at, uh, at 
Atse ever since that uh, that encounter um, that was brought forth in the Grossman summary, and then not really letting it go, becoming very curious about the way he goes about things and in his world and his life, um, and and feeling trapped. Think him, uh, Xiao Kong, uh, thinking himself that he is trapped, uh, and you know he has his own arc there, and we. It's not until later that that we sort of get that seems sort of opposing um, arc from Atze where he's maybe reconsidering the way because I think he is sort of accustomed to his life in a way that Xiao Kang is going about in a more performative manner, um, whereas Atze is maybe performative in in other ways and how he uh, deals with people uh, and you know approaches his feelings towards um, uh, towards Akwe. I also, strangely enough, found the parallels with Desperately Seeking Susan, just thinking about how in this, like, I presume they're all in their early 20s or maybe late teens, and they're just kind of like throwing themselves at the world. And I really liked um, earlier when Jason was talking about how they're kind of orbiting each other, like they, they're trying to find some sort of existence. And I don't know if they're necessarily striving to achieve like, a vibe or a scene because they seem pretty just invested in themselves um, and in each of their own ways. But um, I also recently watched Smithereens, which is a uh, 1982 movie about like the punk scene in New York. And it also similarly just shows like people kind of in this like gritty kind of dank environment, really just wanting to be anything at all. Yeah, um, I like the term orbiting that you use because, and and it goes back to what uh, Aaron was saying as well about how this is a vibe movie. And I guess if anything, to me, the the only sort of um, like a, a po- uh, opposing whatever's this movie set up, uh, at least to me, was uh, one person is is uh, nonplussed by the the lack of uh, excess in their life. Like Atse has very little, um, you know, materially and otherwise in, in his world. And he's very accustomed to that by this point. He's, he's visibly nonplussed. Whereas, uh, Tao Kong is, uh, he's in the, you know, he's in school, he's in a world where, uh, every building he goes into is filled, uh, to the brim with people. uh, you know, parking lots are, are filled with, with scooters. Um, he's given a bowl of fruit and he says, this is too much food. I can't eat it. And he's just sort of, uh, um, not, He's not he, he's not phased by the the excess of of his life and, and all the opportunities he has. Um, Cody, you mentioned uh, how performative all of these characters seem to be uh, in their own way. I thought I think that's pretty clearly very important uh, as a visual theme and also from a um, characterizing perspective for both uh, Sao Kang and uh Ase and Aping, um, and to a lesser and and obviously different socio um, political extent, um, Akwe as well. But um, that that was very interesting to me in terms of what what a neon god, quote unquote, like big scare quotes, is anyway, right? Um, and I, I think that 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 visual motif of of performance is really well communicated through the environments that we see these characters inhabit. Um, for instance, there's more porn uh, and pictures of um, objectified naked women in this movie than maybe any I've ever seen, even in uh, areas where it doesn't 
make a lot of non sort of diegetic sense where like they'll go to random hotel rooms and there will just be um, like naked smut pictures like plastered on the walls um it's all over the arcade too even on the cabinets that we just passed by for a second you can see objectified women uh eventually it becomes textual where there's a there's a picture of a, a naked woman in um a Ping's bedroom uh in the final scene with those two characters um so th- those those images are juxtaposed with um with fighting games and with uh, there's a literal James Dean poster on the wall uh, from rebel without a cause that Jason, you pointed out in the arcade itself. Um, Oddly also, this is a weird uh, tangent, but there's a, there's a weird Japanese motif running through this uh, that, that was sort of interesting to to look at. Um, But it's, it's that, that desire uh, to use the key term that, that Aaron was talking about juxtaposed with um, what, what seemed to me to be a growing restlessness or malaise represented by like, for instance, the, um, the flooding of uh, Ase and Ah Ping's apartments um, or the, the cockroach that, that is the first characterizing moment of, of Sao Kang, right? Where he finds a cockroach in his bedroom and he kills it with his protractor or tries to kill it with his protractor. That protractor later comes into play when he messes up um, Ase's uh, motorcycle in the third act. But uh, so, so you have these two competing forces, right? Of, of restlessness and growing discontentment and growing feeling that, that there's nowhere to go and that nothing's happening with this, this desire. And I think to me, at least, um, those, those two things ended up correlating with one another where it became this sort of this desire to become something else so that you don't get flooded out by the, the blankness and the, the, um, the impossibility of a future represented by, um, the the places that they inhabit now right there there's a yearning uh at the heart of this movie for uh different representations of the self um and i think that that also sao kang's relationship with neza um his apparent reincarnation um and his relationship with his parents and then later with ase feed into all of that right like there's there's a lot of um different forces intersecting here um and i think that the questions of of those forces and what they um affect is is at the heart of what this movie um was talking about for me um i think sorry go ahead aaron no i was i was gonna say i i don't want to like reduce what this film is doing at all but it's it's even more than the idea of kind of this generational uh aimlessness um I, i think this is like primarily a movie about like pent up sexual angst. I think that's like what the movie yeah. is, is very largely moving towards. I think my, my thought on that kind of unlocked a little bit when you said, when you were talking a little bit about like the performative nature of what these people are doing, I think you get that in, in kind of most, there's like a specific genre of media. That's like uh, young uh, guys and gals just like fucking around in an urban environment uh, where you get a lot of that uh, kind of, performative uh, nature of their characters. I think you get that in something like Akira, which has that to a certain extent. Um, Great example. uh, I'm reading uh, The Savage Detectives right now, which is a book which is about uh, a Mexican like wannabe poet, just kind of, again, just fucking around like being horny all all the time. Um, And it's hard not to even view, I think, a lot of the visual uh, themes in this movie. I, I think that there is something very sexual with the idea of this kind of bubbling up liquid from the sewer grate. Uh, the same thing with him stabbing the cockroach. Um, 
I think a lot of that is is about this kind of teen sexual angst um, that that's like it's it's like it, it is very often at the forefront of the movie. Again, there are posters of naked women. These people are, you know, trying to have sex all the time, um, but it's also very understated in a weird way. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry to, to bring it back to me. Um, as somebody else can get a turn, so to speak. But um, it's it's interesting too what that what that sexual frustration is because it what appears to be a sexual sort of like frustration ends up in sort of a, a classical um, Freudian sense, maybe um, becoming about something else where it's not actually about sex itself, right? Even though it of course is about sex, right? Like uh, we open with the characterization of Ah Ping uh, masturbating as he listens to Ah Se and Ah Kwe, uh have sex next door to him. Um, you're right. The stabbing of the cockroach is very sexual. These men's relationship to one another is, is very uh, sexual. There's probably a really good queer reading to this movie um, that I'm not, of, of course, qualified to uh, make, but, um, but, and, and then uh it, what's interesting about it is it it ends up becoming about something like intimacy, right? Where where when when Ah Ping is is so badly injured after failing to steal the uh, or getting caught stealing the arcade cabinet um material materials, uh, he he wants to embrace a woman, right? Or like like Akwe and Ase have this have this sad relationship where where sexuality happens, but there's no intimacy because they're they're both too guarded or too afraid to express themselves um and you can you can also read sao kang's sexual frustrations as also a uh um a frustration with with a lack of intimacy or a lack of expression um and what's really tragic and fascinating about this movie is the way in which it depicts um the manner in which the the desire for performance is itself a manifestation, a sort of um, warped manifestation of desire for that uh, um, intimacy, even as it precludes that intimacy, right? Where like they want this intimacy, so they want to be worthy of it, and so they perform. And this performance, the mechanics of the performance preclude them from making themselves vulnerable enough to get that intimacy. There's a lot of, uh, to use Jason's uh, favorite term, the mortifying ideal of being known <laughs> in, the, in this movie. Um, and, and the ways that it, it warps uh, masculinity in particular and sexuality um, into being this, um, this sad and violent um, and angry sort of um, ends uh, was, was really uh, well depicted, I think, here. Um, we we don't have to talk about this right right away, but like for instance, it's like extremely important and pointed that Sao Kang um, graffitis aids onto uh, Ase's motorcycle. Like that's a pretty wild and loaded uh, metaphor, right? Yeah, uh, I do, I do gotta uh, correct you on a minor point you made a while back because it's like a a, a very oh, cool. weird plot point. No. Uh, I think you you said that Ah Ping uh, masturbates listening to Atse have sex with Ah Kwe when it is uh, it is Atse masturbating listening to his own brother who is not depicted in the movie have sex with her, uh, which oh, is right. one yeah, of the yeah, weirdest okay. versions I've ever seen in him. I was like, oh, oh, okay, what? No, whatever. that is actually important. I'm glad you said that. Sorry, I got that mixed up. It's yeah, it's a it's a, a disgusting scene, and it's like, oh, okay, the. Yes, and I think that does tie into a lot of the, the points later on. 
Um, I guess I'll, if I can kind of slightly bring up a point, I know Jason wants to say something, but it seemed to me like the, the criticisms of sexuality in this film were a lot more pointed than a lot of the other criticisms. Uh, I guess halfway through this movie, I thought specifically the scenes in the arcade, uh, video games, kind of a lot of the, the television people is watching or people are watching. Um, I thought that would be kind of a very 1990s criticism of like violent video games or kind of what, you know, kind of mass media is doing to people. It, it seemed to me by the end of the film that that wasn't as pointed as I thought, where it seemed to me that the portrayals of, uh, you know, again, like uh, nude women, um, you know, posters, uh, porn that's just constantly playing in every single hostel and hotel these characters stay at. It seemed like that was a lot more pointed into what that is doing to kind of desensitize all of these characters. Anybody else get that or is that just me? Well, as just compliment to your point, uh, I think that the use of video games and other mass media, aside from uh, pornography and, you know, generally uh, sexualization in media, I, th- I think I think it's telling that only it, mostly or even, I guess, even is the right word, even in times when Atse is uh, not necessarily performing for anybody or with anybody when he's not with Ping, when he's not with Quay he goes to the arcade, right? He sits down and plays a few rounds of street fighter. There's a, a scene where he spends the night with, uh, Akwe. he leaves, uh, early morning, or maybe it's late at night and, um, and just goes to the arcade and spends a few quarters there and then comes back. Akwe is left thinking that he had uh, abandoned her, all that kind of stuff. I think it's telling that like the way that that is like you said, it could be interpreted at first as like the uh, inculcation of of uh, of youth by mass media and you know brain rot, etc. But I think that the movie quickly establishes that that's not that it is really just like one, it's just sort of scene setting. It's sort of part of the inner city uh, vibe and and just pastimes of these people is like a trip to the arcade, right? Spending some time playing R-Type and Battlefield 1942 or whatever. I, you know, you notice dozens and dozens of arcade games in there. Um, yeah, that, that I don't know if that's so much a take on what you were saying, but it is sort of my response to it, I guess. Yeah, and I generally agree with uh, the fact that the movie has a lot more to say about the over-sexualization and gaze um, particularly of women just happening all the time. Um, but then the, this dressing of just like technology and how it's affecting human connection a little bit, because all of these, like the arcade is such a singular sucked in activity. Like it's just you in the screen and you might jump around to like a little bit of a different world, like a different gaming experience or something. And then you see it when they literally strip the parts from the computer that it's just something that can be transactional and uh, monetized on for for some other gains. Um, but then you kind of contrast that with the, uh, I don't know, dating phone bank. I don't really know what to call that place, but the, the cubicles where you could sit and wait and have this like match made randomized uh, connection. Uh, I, I, I found that very jarring. And of course it reminded me of, Paris, Texas, where we have the peep show booths um, that happened to be the last episode I was on. But just the idea that the, yeah, the technology can bring us these arcades, these like really flashy games that, and then technology is also bringing us these like creepy little phone booths. Uh, I 
by the way, everybody listening, go listen to the Paris, Texas episode. Uh, another good episode. Um, no, Jenny, I think you nailed it with the term transactional. The minute you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, yep. that is yeah. that is what this movie is doing, especially with the arcade machines. I mean, it's it's a it's a bit different now because like arcades are not anywhere. Right. If you go to an arcade, it's a barcade like you, you go to up down uh, those style arcades are still, I think, popular in parts of Asia, but in America, they're completely gone. So I think a lot of people may not have as much of the context. But those machines were like built specifically just to take your money just over and over and over again in a completely transactional uh, and like very cheap nature. Um, and it is, it, again, it ties into the, they're stealing from phone booths partially to, you know, probably pay their bills or what have you, but also because it gives out quarters and they can just use those quarters over and over and over again. And I think if you tie that into a lot of the, the nature of the sexuality portrayed in the film, it's like, that's like actually really grim, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Uh, so two things, two things that are really uh, good of that about both of the things that you uh, just said, which is, is first the, the transactional nature of technology in this movie that um, Jenny characterized so well actually is sort of an answer for, in my opinion, why this movie's opinions on uh, the neon God, big scare quotes, is not um, the sort of traditional 90s finger wagging that uh, Aaron, you feared it was. And I think that I feared it, it could have been, which is that I think that this movie is making a pretty good point that those things are a manifestate are a sort of a symptomatic manifestation of an already extant um if not cynicism, then despair about modern connection and relationships um, and a despair for the future. Um, I think that that's really powerfully demonstrated in why Sao Kang um, ends up where he does uh, and why he becomes attracted to following around Ase um, as opposed to his, his cram school, which is that, in my opinion, uh, it seems clear that Sao Kang has no interest in or belief in a future for himself that he wants, right? That like the, the future as sketched by his parents um, and who he could be in their eyes is not something he wants. It's something that is in fact anathema to the person he wants to be or to the, to the way that he thinks he feels and, and to the person as sort of deterministically created by the neon God or by the world he inhabits. There's a sense in which the city is not something that, that is working for him uh, or that is working for any of these characters to build them towards something that they want. Um, and so I think that, that, it's an interesting sense in which the the transactional sort of cheap nature of these things correlates really well with how they think about each other and themselves and women. Um, at, at one point, Atse uh, says to Akwe, when she asks him, will you call me again? He says, what for? Uh, which is a pretty good encapsulation of that relationship. Although it, it's worth noting that he was being sort of coquettish there. Um, you, Aaron, you said something really brilliant about how um, they... Um, they're robbing these these phone banks in order to get quarters that they can put back into the system. They can put back into a different machine to evoke a different need, but it, it's a need that in the end is sort of the same and it's feeding into the same mechanism that that's perpetuating their sort of disaffected, drunken, um, 
uh, cycle. Uh, I think that that's like that's like the brilliant central metaphor of this movie, right? And it gets to that the heart of that question of like, what is it to to rebel against the neon god in the first place? And this movie has a really grim opinion of that, which is that like something along the lines of like deterministically, we haven't been given the tools to defy, right? Like because defiance itself is the same thing that us are that uh that Cao Kang himself is doing right which is that like your your very rebellion is characteristic of the same posturing uh masculine drive that leads you to um buy back into the system over and over again. So there's a sense in which even your rebellious actions are robbing Peter to pay Paul or robbing a phone bank to pay an arcade machine in this case. Uh, and that is how this aimlessness perpetuates itself. Um, and this movie gives a little indication of, of a way out of that, but is more interested in my mind in where that comes from deterministically, the despair that that comes from and why we lack the tools to do anything about it. Um, so I thought that that bringing up that metaphor was a really good point. Now I'm going to shut up. Jason, you want to go? Not really. I think I'll let you go. <laughs> uh, I was just, this is like such a weird 90. I don't even know if anybody's going to have any hopping off points for this, but I was going to say that I, I think one of the reasons that I was so afraid of, of this film veering into kind of stereotypical, uh, uh, a lot of stereotypical territory in regard to critiquing technology or sexuality or, uh, you know, those kind of elements in society is that I, I think a lot of the stuff specifically from like the eighties and nineties that critiqued that kind of stuff, uh, came at it from the wrong angle, um, where a lot of those efforts were often censorship or very conservative in nature. Right. Um, specifically a lot of the discussions around like pornography or violent video games, or uh, even like things like, uh, uh, you know, music, what kind of words you can say, parental advisory stickers with RIAA, things of that nature. Um, those were always very conservative efforts that were designed to protect capital, uh, just a different kind of capital, uh, right? Like the, the discussion around like parental advisory stickers was always, we need to be able to play this on the radio for largely Christian families in the United States. Uh it, it's like a very conservative form of censorship where there is a lot of critiques that, that films can make. And I think this film is making of sexuality of modern entertainment culture without veering into that territory. And this film did that. And it's like, it's actually kind of rare, I think. Uh, and that's, as I'm talking about it, I'm starting to appreciate that even more, I guess. Uh, you guys have fun talking about anything after that. Sorry. Yeah. I don't know how far I can spin off of that. Um, I guess just like the culmination of what everybody's saying leads me to like my overall take about the movie is that it is obviously it's primarily about Atze and uh, Shao Kang's relationship or, or like sort of half existent relationship, right? Uh, connected by things that, uh, th that neither of them really can see or control, I guess. And that with respect to the self-actualization and the pursuit of identity that Harry brought up for, for pretty much every character in the movie, there's way more to say than I, than I'm thinking of, I'm sure. But like the, the one that rings, the thing that rings to me, the thing that keep that keeps coming, that I keep coming back to in my mind is that the closer Xiao Kang thinks he is to uh, that self-actualization to, to like having purpose to, you know, overcoming teenage malaise, 
the further he actually gets from it. Uh, and like, I think that's exemplified heavily by the end of the, well, two, two points in the movie where he wrecks Atze's bike and has his, uh, you know, uh, he's jumping about in his hotel room and he's very uh, pleased with himself and it pans back out to, or it cuts back out to Atze and then it cuts back into uh, Xiao Kang and he's just laying in bed completely just comatose. Essentially he's, he's like, he has retained no actual satisfaction or actualization regarding that action. The one like largest action he's taken into the, uh, up to the movie, the largest instance of action that he's, that he's uh, created in that movie, the biggest impact he's had in that movie so far on somebody else's life. It was actually didn't, didn't mean much internally for him. And then at the very end, it's, it's called back to again, excuse me, where he goes again, like Jenny was saying to the, uh, you know, midnight dating service or whatever, where uh, he's supposed to receive a call and answer it. And he can't even bring himself to do that. He can't form relationships even by picking up a phone when six people call him directly uh, with the express purpose of talking to him. And he just leaves. Uh, be- beautiful. One of the beautiful ways to end a movie, honestly. Um, and conversely to that, and I, I don't know how much more there is to say about it for me, but the closer the the closer Xiao Kang thinks he's getting to that self-actualization to some interiority and like a sense of identity the closer Atze actually gets to it impacted directly by um by Xiao Kang's actions you could say like that god of of mischief the neon god Neja uh impacted directly by that some of those actions like the ruining of the bike like the tearing down of of uh, Atze's uh, like emotional and and mental well being, essentially, he gets closer and closer to that like bubbling self of a purpose and identity and relationship with uh with Quay, right? And and that's at the end of the movie, he cannot contain the the flow of water from the drain at the bottom of the uh, you know the drain in his apartment, and um and eventually breaks down with along with Quay to say, you know, we should, we should get out of here. We should leave. They finally like embrace it for the first convincing time in the movie. Uh, they both appear to be ex- exhibiting and exposing their true selves again, more musings than real points, but I would like to know what anybody thinks of, of those. Uh, yeah. I mean, not that I really am here to talk about Westworld, but I felt like there was the idea that you in, um, in what you said, Jason, about people, um, I guess living in their like fixed loop. And at the end we get to see that uh, Aze and Akwe like just want to break out of it and do something else. Uh, right. Whereas Zhao Kang is just kind of living a non-existent life. He spends so much of the movie just watching or looking or following. And we don't really know if he has that, that watchfulness out of curiosity or idolization or, like a, an anger, like waiting to strike. Cause we only see him really show emotions two or three times in the entire movie. And uh, yeah, I guess I, I wasn't really sure like what the, the relationship between these, these two um, housing and Aze were going to be like. Um, and then we see them finally interact uh, with the, him circling back around to ask if he wants help with his motorcycle and he gets completely shut down on that <laughs> friendship opportunity. <laughs> that's that's an incredible short scene, how he like loops around, he like stops his bike, he realizes he's ahead of the guy and leverages the fact 
uh, sorry to take it, the the uh, the spotlight from everybody for a second, but he leverages the fact that Atze is not going to remember this guy's face from when he was smashed his taxi uh, window or mirror, and from the times that he's like interfaced with him probably at the arcade. He leverages that fact to sort of tantalize, to sort of uh, poke fun at him, to be again that annoying little fly orbiting Atze. I, I love that scene. Well, do we think that he's teasing him, or is he? Um, did he want to redeem himself from his actions? I it. I, yeah. yeah, he just kind of came about it expressionless. So I never really knew where he stood. That is a great point. And I think it sort of operates as both, right? Is that he is embodying the that God of mischief archetype that his mother has instilled in his mind by sort of uh, ruining his day and then coming about to ask him if he can help him, like if he needs help fixing his ruined day and then being shut down. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, maybe somewhere inside genuinely trying to create a, a connection it's that sort of par- those parallel desires i i'm still fascinated by that scene i harry was talking about how this is a movie where you can where while watching it at times you can feel a little bit like it's it's slow it's obviously very slow it's a slow burn but then thinking about it afterward it i don't know it's getting stronger and stronger in my mind in terms of what it was trying to do and how it did those things yeah we're talking about um the the things that we got out of this movie and um like for me it's it's pretty straightforward you know for all the the vibing that this movie is doing the journey uh at its core does belong to Chao Kong and his uh you know him seeing what he thinks he wants him having uh you know misconceptions about it and uh you know coming to a conclusion at the very end there and in, in that last scene uh and this movie builds up that idea of of misconception in different ways uh in part through its motifs um specifically water um we've talked about the way water is used in this movie uh, a few different ways um i i i guess i sort of saw it as you know, traditionally you know water is this classic symbol of um you know cleansing or rebirth people are are bathing in it and that you know usually has some kind of significance um here, that's not really the case. Uh, in fact, it's staunchly the opposite. Um, even from that first scene, that first shot, um, where crimes are being uh, committed, um, uh, Tiao Kong tears up the bike uh, in the rain as well. Um, Atze lives in a puddle, um, so it's the, it's you know this own uh, its own type of of bathing, but something that's that's unwarranted and is positioned as something that instead of being a sort of recalibrative uh, symbol, it instead, you know, it's indicative of some kind of rejection uh, or, or isolation. Um, and it's, it's something that like uh, Atze and uh, Aping may call, you know, they, they may uh, call back to uh, their lives or their days being unlucky uh, when really it's, uh, an indication of something, the, the the choices that they made up to that point, um, whether they know it or not. Yeah, I love the fluidity, not no pun intended, of water throughout this movie as metaphor for, like, in my mind, partially, it was sort of the bubbling uh, sentimentality and, like, real self-actualization and, and realization of identity that uh, I'd say eventually gets to like sort of experience. Uh, what you're saying about, like, it being maybe a motivator for shame or, uh, or mischief, like, very astutely observed, Harry or Cody. Sorry to sorry to take the microphone away again. 
Uh, no problem. It's it's cool that that we you know that's sort of a an indication of of a successful movie if we're all so excited that we can't uh, contain ourselves, right? And I'm usually the most maybe shut the guilty fuck of up. that. No, that's not what I was saying at all. But uh, uh, you know, a um, lot, lot of good things uh, being brought up that I that I wanted to um, comment on as uh, always, I guess. <laughs> uh, but but it's interesting, Jason, that that you seem to have a pretty great. Um, or not great, but but positive understanding of where Ase and Akwe end up, which is interesting because um, I don't necessarily totally agree, except that, I mean, I think the characterization is there, but I think where they end up is is maybe a realization that they can't move forward, that that, that there's nowhere to go, which is really interesting. Um, but, but maybe the idea is that even the realization of that at least frames their problems honestly for the first time, uh, right. perhaps. Which is th- which is in and of itself a, a great victory, right? Right, and so I think that's, that's prog- worth. I think that's progress for them, right? Even yes. like yeah, moving yeah. toward the realization that, that there is not progress. Yeah, um, I I'm very fascinated by Neza itself and what that represents. Um, Neza is is a character, uh, a powerful child god in in classic Chinese mythology, um, who is who is defined by his um, his. Uh, relationship or rebellion against his father it's really interesting that that uh sao kang adopts that as his moniker when he's rebelling against uh ase and his indulging in his obsessions um i think that that correlates really well with the futility of rebellion that this movie depicts largely about the idea that rebelling against a father is the same thing as being defined by a father right uh, and in this case, in my mind, the father is actually Ase, not necessarily even Cao Kang's own father. Um, and what Ase represents to uh, Cao Kang and all that he wants and feels he can't be and wants to be. Um, I mean, the, I, I said I wasn't going to do this, but like the, the the sort of queer reading to this movie is that Cao Kang is like very much in love with Ase, right? Like in an, in an obsessed sort of dishonest sense, but he, he like, Ase is like representative to him of like something he desperately wants, uh, a freedom or an idea of himself that he can't attain. Um, and rebelling against that is itself a manifestation of a desire, just like that, um, that posturing that precludes us from intimacy is itself a manifestation of the yearning for that intimacy. Um, so th- there's an interesting um, self-actualization metaphor here about being honest about what you're rebelling against and why you're rebelling against it um, and and where the, the desire for that rebellion actually comes from. That to me was, was really well characterized by um, particularly that scene you're talking about where Sao Kang sort of does this thing where like he, he reaches out to Ase after he messes up his motorcycle. And like, it's just like, I just want to be close to this person in, in whatever, um, whatever capacity I can be. Right. And like, why is that? And like, how are you defining yourself in opposition to, or relation to this person and how those things are not so maybe different? Uh, sorry, go ahead, Jenny. Um, I do like this reading that Aze is Sao Kang's daddy in the movie, that uh, he's like a figure that he like is trying to define himself through, right? The self-actualization part of it. And um, by him adopting the Neza moniker, um, it, I, I guess I had a lot more curiosity and unanswered questions about 
um, like Taoist like folk tradition and like stories about God because I feel like a lot of this movie and like we see the the mother go through a couple different actions um, here with like incense and burning and um, presumably her profession there and also her beliefs of like trying to use these other figures as methods of explanation or excuses for us or things to be fearful of like a like a way to shape or guide our our life and typically these these 20 somethings or teenagers they they are already rejecting that generational difference of like folk tales and like those guiding principles until um until Sao Kang just wants to then like decide that he is that like I um he presents himself as like a like a lightning bolt strike on Aze's life because he wants to have him notice him maybe I, I I guess that's where I left off with it um it's it's interesting too that like they they reject it in like the strongest possible even like physiological terms where like it literally makes them sick like sickness and drunkenness is a really power like uh poignant motif in this movie like there, there's one scene where um where Sao Kang's mom she like she burns a um like chant paper in a um a mixing bowl and adds the ashes to their food and then it immediately makes her family members sick like in the next scene um and then there's the idea that that Sao Kang is um on the toilet again because his his uh stomach is upset and he's listening to his mom and dad talk about him and they're they're talking about how he's the reincarnation of this god and that's like very upsetting to him until he adopts it and and appropriates it in my opinion to his own ends um but but there's a sense in which like the rejection is not is not even like um it, it's not it's not even conscious right there's something like th- there's something like disgusting in it it's like we're we're really really powerfully rejecting this even our bodies are uh which was an interesting point i think the movie made but but uh yeah i don't know i don't know a lot about um about neza uh obviously um but that was a that was really interesting to me too um along with the fact that that he wrote aids on the motorcycle uh that along with um along with his stabbing of the cockroach in the first scene uh made it feel like he was weaponizing a sort of um conservative purity that that Aaron you had um mentioned earlier sort of against or at least referencing it and that was an interesting sense where the outside world kind of comes into this movie um the the fact that 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 is all tied in with the Neza persona makes it feel like it's it's sort of leveraging um in authority figures um presence in the movie yeah uh, which uh, is also interesting if i can jump into uh, just in a quick google search uh in 1990 this movie was released in 1992 in 1990 uh taiwan the taiwanese government um created the aids prevention and control act which under which uh foreigners who tested positive for HIV were required to be deported. Um, yeah, it, it sort of sets the stage for the cultural impact, the, the meaning of that specifically of him attacking Atze in that way, like provoke provoking. I think it goes back to what, uh, to what Jenny was saying and what I was saying earlier that like, it is a direct provocation with intent to like, with, with glances toward intimacy, right? That's like the nature of their relationship is that Atze exists as this sort of self 
styled rebel without a cause type, uh, you know, loving and leaving and, uh, you know, drinking with friends and, uh, you know, being wanted and desired and actually realizing that he's not that interiorly or, uh, internally and, uh, Xiao Kang realizing that he like, he wants that, but realizing that he, that he cannot have that, that like, even if he did, it would not be something to desire, right? It's not something that, that jives with his, with, with what his, uh, with what the world has in store or, or sort of like prescribed for him, uh, from his parents to his schooling. It has not like, that's not a reality that can come to be for, uh, Xiao Kang. Uh, does that spark any thoughts, Aaron? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I think that what, what the term Harry used about weaponizing kind of this conservative ideology, I think, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, you know, I think that, uh, obviously we're not given too many close looks at the, the kind of ideology or opinions of his family. Right. But I, I think that, um, Sao King, he's obviously a quite a bit more buttoned up, right. Than a lot of the other characters in this movie. Um, I think that when he lashes out in that manner, it's, it's him lashing out in a, in a manner that's, um, it's, it's obviously very juvenile, right. But it's, it's, represents his jealousy for the life that Atze is living. Um, and I think that's part of why he tries to help him out uh, with his bicycle later on. And like, you know, two scenes later, I think he just kind of instinctively knows that it's wrong and feels bad. Right. Um, I think that he does recognize that part of what he is feeling is not just anger uh, or the need for vengeance, but it, it is jealousy and it is kind of this desire. Um, and he, you know, there's the scene where he's kind of jumping around in the hostel room. Uh, up and down on his bed and then he immediately hits his head and he just kind of starts crying while laughing uh at what he had just done uh to the bicycle and you know you can kind of tell that that it's again it's performative right um it's not he knows that it's kind of wrong and false as he's doing it i i would present like a left turn into that where I do like, obviously clearly it's a pivot moment for him and how he feels. I don't think that it's the realizes it's wrong. I think it's that he's realizing he doesn't actually feel much from it. He doesn't feel satisfaction. Right. And like back to uh, like roping that into my point later on, I'd say um, it's one of the most beautiful character moments in this whole movie. I'd say realize or re- like recognized uh, Xiao Kang's dad as the taxi driver who took them home when Ping was uh, beaten in an alleyway. And he knew that. And he said that he, that he felt shitty about it still like this uh, disaffected um, yeah. uh, floating through life youth, this rebel without a cause character uh, still feels bad about breaking the guy's mirror in a moment of like a passionate anger about being honked at right all the way at the end of this movie. That's just like, it's held on there, right? Like we know that it was a bad thing for him to do and we know that it should have made him feel shitty, but we have assumed the audience has assumed that he's not the kind of person who feels bad about that. Whereas again, compare that to, to, um, Xiao Kang's, uh, thing where he does something genuinely terrible. He wrecks this guy's bike beyond repair and, uh, feels nothing for it. Like he, he feels immediate giddiness that like at the person's reaction, but after, I'm presuming in the movie's time, maybe 30 seconds of molding on it realizes that that, that didn't actually, it didn't give him anything. It, it was, it was a fruitless, the tree, right? Like he, he, he did not get the sort of, uh, internal satisfaction that he wanted from it. That, that, that comparison is sort of microcosm for my whole reading of the movie. 
Um, I guess uh, earlier in what Jason was speaking about, I was thinking about, um, yeah, again, how Sao Kang's character's like, yeah, emotionless and just kind of uh, following around in life. And I then recalled um, reading about this movie and seeing that uh, the director was fascinated with this actor because he was studying for exams at the time. And he thought, right, the quote is, what if I made a movie if somebody didn't go to school, what would happen to them? And I don't know that we have that much of a commentary on like, like you kids should be in school instead or like something like that. But the, the idea of like veering off a predetermined um, path, I guess that was my note. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and why you would do that. Right. And the, 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 the despair that that connotes where like, uh, like I said, um, Sao Kang, like he, he seems to leave school because he just like, doesn't see anything for himself in it. Um, Jason, uh, to your point, this, this movie is like, it's deceptively really tender right like surprisingly tender where like i think one of the one of the big subversions of this movie is that ase himself is like a, a genuinely pretty decent guy despite his posturing right like there's something sort of akira-esque about that where like it turns out that that these men are actually like looking for intimacy where like his his relationship with akue ends up being real and maybe even ostensibly offering them a way out of the sort of like closed rebellion circuit that um, Sao Kang finds himself uh, entrapped in by the end of the movie. Um, I also like, I think this is a very deterministic movie in terms of the framing of its narrative and where it's going. It seems to me to be asking the question, where did these things come from? Uh, like Jenny, to Jenny's point, like what would happen to somebody if they dropped out of school? Why would they drop out of school? And then also uh, going further to what are the ends of these behaviors in these relationships? And I think that like you can't get any more stark a reading of that than where Ase ends up relative to Sao Kang, where literally Ase, the movie ends with Ase embracing a woman for the first time in honest terms and having what what looks like the first genuine relationship where the people can be honest about their feelings of vulnerability um, and tenderness. And that is prompted by Akwe doing a truly selfless thing, right? Where she embraces Ping when he's beat up and that breaks down both of their defenses, like showing uh, like this human care and consciousness for one, for one another is what, what breaks the, um, the sort of performative cycle of using one another and then pretending like you didn't care and your feelings weren't hurt. Um, which it's, it's also interesting. There's an, there's a gender dialectic there that's interesting and, and maybe, um, a little bit simplistic where like Akwe is very good at that, um, from the, from the start. And it's kind of about getting Ase to that point, which is maybe not amazing, but, uh, I, I digress. Um, whereas right after that scene of the embrace, you get the great final scene that Jason mentioned, which is, uh, Sao Kang going to this phone bank to get something, uh, some kind of communication and connection. And he can't pick up the phone. Right. Which is like that final scene is such a like rosebud of this entire movie of like, Oh, like all of this time, this kid was looking for some sort of a connection and he's precluded from it by what he's made himself right um sorry go ahead oh i was just gonna say it 
comparing that final scene, I mean, it sounds stupid, but compare the final scene of a movie to the beginning scene of the movie. But the way that those two characters are set up, the way that Shao Kang is set up is like, man, this guy is really, he's a young kid going through it and we don't want to see him fall into the hands of the miscreant youth. We don't want to f- see him fall in with, with bad folks. And then oh, we there's come an to- irony there. That's right. Oh, I'm exactly. sorry. Over the course. No, that's, that's, that's my point is that it's like, uh, over the course of the movie, we come to realize that he's not at risk of that. He wants that and he should not have that. And, uh, or, or like he cannot have that rather. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm really just nailing the same point over and over, but I'm just heartened that a lot of what uh, the other people on the, sh- on the podcast are saying sort of jives, or at least I can bend it <laughs> to serve my point too. <laughs> I'm not sure if I interpret that last scene differently than everybody else here but but for me that that wasn't uh you know that wasn't him failing to pick up the phone because he lacks you know the ability in order to make meaningful connections i think he he understands that that is not a meaningful connection right like he understands that the that the yeah of course state phone building is a a tra- another transaction for him to make where he gets sold the idea of love and sex um you know he pays 350 bucks an hour and he gets a free drink and he gets to sit in a little booth. And I think especially the image of the phone bank lighting up and there's like 20 buttons and like 15 of them are lit up red. Right. And he can just pick whichever one he wants. And he sees that as a a hollow experience. Right. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not anti to what you said, but it, it felt like maybe I took that a little bit differently, I guess. I guess my read on him not picking it up was more that he, uh, uh, didn't want to follow down this like miscreant path of life or something. And that maybe he's like finished out his uh, excursions of like being away from home and not following his path or something. I took it as him like having a final rejection of that. Um, another like side thought I had was um, when you mentioned how much it costs to have an hour in the room and it was like $350. One, I don't have any understanding or concept of the exchange rate for 1992 uh, Taiwanese money, but how many times they said things cost, like they, they brought up the monetary value of every transaction, every single time it happened. And I thought that was um, also pretty striking of just when, when they have, I guess, uh, limited income too. like every single thing that they do, every choice they make is metered out by how much they can truly afford the expense as well. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna, I, sorry, I say two things a lot, but like work, working backwards, uh, I also noticed that Jenny, and that's a really good thing to point out. It's, it's like a, it's a, it's a wild symbol, right? Because like, not only did they bring up the, the actual like monetary cost of things, um, almost constantly, but the numbers were always like incomprehensible from my perspective where they were talking about like, oh, like I have $15,000 right here or like to the cost to repair this motorcycle will come out to $5,000. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to uh, regular listeners for saying this. It kind of reminded me of Yakuza zero where like the, the there's, there's a symbol in Yakuza zero of 
the bubble economy and how uh, wild and fucked up mon- like um, the economy was in Japan at that time. And the idea is just that like everything in that game costs like an insane amount of money. Like you, you go because everybody had so much money um, where like you, you'll go to like buy a drink or something and it would be like, Oh, this drink is $24 or something. Um, and th- that was sort of an impression I got from this as well. Um, and then sorry to, to go back to, to Aaron's point. Um, I think that I agree with sorry that. Sorry to go back to Aaron's point. Um, I, I think I agree with, with what you were saying. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, uh, because I, I read the, the final scene with, um, Sao Kang as, as really hopeless and sort of sad and cynical, but your reading and Jenny's reading sort of implies that it might actually be more hopeful where maybe his excursions with, um, with Ase did give him an understanding of what a real connection looks like or what a real desire looks like. That isn't just to, uh, to use and become sort of drunk and then, like waste it and that's why he walks away um that's a, that's an interesting alternative reading um there might be uh a, a um a synthesis of our two readings in the sense that like he knows now that he can't get it from from these things but he doesn't know how to get it but i am really interested in that uh alternative i i did read it pretty pe- pessimistically i guess um i mean I think that he does reject kind of the hollow promise of, you know, the, the transactional nature of those interactions. But I think he also doesn't have any other outlets, right? Like, in the, I think he's pretty much ruined his his relationship with his parents. I don't know. Maybe there's the... There's maybe the a, door's it, open at the end. Yeah. Uh, wait. Which door? Uh, uh, well, the, the last scene with his dad, he... Uh, the dad like climbs up the steps into his, his apartment and slams the door. And then you see him open the door again. Uh, oh, and sure. like, that's, okay. that's the end. So like, maybe that's what that meant, but yeah. uh, anyway, and that's, and that's mirrored by, yeah, that's, that's mirrored by when, um, uh, Xiao Kang leaves the dating pool, right? He leaves the door slightly ajar, whether intentionally or, or unintentionally, it both makes for a great shot. And it, and it parallels, uh, that his dad left the door open on purpose. Right. I don't know if that, means anything or if that's just the one perfect shotism but yeah yeah i was um, gonna say the, the person just really quick about that shot i it, it is a great shot because you also get the shot of the person on the left still kind of yammering away on the phone right and it is kind of this juxtaposition behind between what he is leaving at this phone bank and, and kind of what he is maybe hypothetically headed off to uh one thing i'm also trying to sort through and think about is what does uh Sao King's character not see like he doesn't see them trying to sell off the machine parts or the arcade parts doesn't see them get beat up doesn't see that his father is the one to take them away in the taxi cab and doesn't see that last embrace between Aze and Akwe um, saying let's get out of here so like does his perception and watchfulness like he's really missing a lot of key components of like what this other lifestyle that he's wondering about could be like, I guess. It, yeah. Yeah. Cause we, we see him watching them so much, but we, we also see a lot of things he doesn't at all. Well, and, and like the, the idea is that his perception of Ase is false, right? Like that's kind of what Ase's story is all about is how, like, in fact, this, this sort of chat, uh, is, is himself, uh, both affected by the the posturing and not actually uh, an example of it, because there aren't actually examples of the type of person that uh, Sao Kang 
seems to think that uh, Ase is, right? It's like, in fact, they're all in some manner or another Sao Kangs. It's just that they don't get to see the parts of each other's story where they are being the Sao Kang and jumping around in their underwear or uh, crying about their brother um, or what have you. I'm wondering if anybody has any remaining thoughts. Yeah, uh, to, to synthesize my, my takeaway and Aaron's takeaway, there's sort of a really good uh, big 2020 quarantine mood to this movie where like it seems like the reason why honesty is so hard for, for these people uh, is in part because it means uh, looking with, with sort of unclouded eyes at how terrible and hopeless their situation is. That's something that I really deeply admired about this movie is that it didn't end on a happier note is that for, for both um, Ase and Sao Kang, we end on this, like this open sort of next chapter, but it's also a, it's also a sad and scary melancholy one where it's, it's, it's like very much, Oh shit. What now? It's like, okay, I, I didn't pick up the phone. Okay. uh, I have this relationship now and I want to get out of here, but what happens next? Right. And then the very last shot of this movie is just that shot of like the blank dark city with the lights in the distance. And it's very haunting. And it's like, Oh, like, okay, like self-actualization is in part about looking at your situation honestly and looking at your situation honestly can make it very scary. And maybe that's part of why we don't, like why we like the neon God (laughs) is because it's not as dark literally as the alternative. Um, That really spoke to me um, both in terms of like an actual theme for the movie and, and just because of where we're at right now where it's like, oh, like, I get it. Being honest means being honest about how scary and bad things are, uh, which is which is uh, a key takeaway, I think. Go ahead, Jenny. Uh, well, that kind of draws into um, one of the last things that I had in my notebook was about the soundtrack. So the dark and lurking, like 80 synthy beats kind of just like following them around. Like it's just, it felt like a really... Um, heavy and suppressive soundtrack and uh, it introduced itself a a lot of the times where he was just like following them around and yeah I guess um, I I read that the soundtrack won an award but um, I I just found it very effective and it really worked um, for, for me, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, It uh, it's kind of funny. There were a bunch of Terminator two like, video game uh, cartridges uh, or not cartridges cabinets in the arcade. Uh, The the soundtrack kind of reminded me of Terminator a little bit. It was very much an 80s synthy type thing. Uh, Jenny, to your point, it was also just one song, right? Which, or I guess like one refrain uh, that manifested in different ways, but it was distinctive Um, and uh, distinctive in a way, even above and beyond most um, music in film, I think at least maybe for me. Um, in a way that I liked a lot, and that was uh, characteristic of, of, I think, what you're describing. This movie made me want to go to an arcade so fucking badly. Oh, <laughs> man. 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 I was around like three minutes in, I was like, how many arcade games can I name? I didn't get time to go back to the movie, but yeah. like, you definitely saw Street Fighter 2. I saw R Type, probably Battlefield 1942, Tetris. a bunch of like, bu- yeah, uh, Tetris, a bunch of bullet hell shooters. There's one moment of an anime that's playing on like a side Whoa. shop. Uh, it's an Akira Toriyama a- uh, anime, but I don't know which one. Was it not? 
I thought I don't they were think playing they... like She-Ra or something in, in one of the scenes. That's not an anime. Yeah, it could but, be. Uh, yeah, dude, uh, I mentioned this in my letterbox review, but the, the it's a shame this movie came out in 1992. I assume it was filmed kind of earlier in that year or in 1991. Uh, but uh, yeah, Street Fighter 2, you get... In 1992, you get two different versions of Street Fighter 2 coming out. You get the Street Fighter 2 Championship, Championship Edition, uh, and then you also get the Turbo Edition. Both are superior ways to play Street Fighter 2, yet everybody in this game is playing the normal Street Fighter 2 because they hadn't been made yet. It's really oh, and they, so they, mere, they merely had to make do with Street Fighter 2, one of the best video games <laughs> well, ever made. Yeah, but you get the... Tur- <laughs> Frankly, if, if they had been around... If this movie was set in 1996 and the Alpha version... Uh, undeniably the best version. You're right. I mean, you're not, you're not wrong. These characters wouldn't have even been depressed. They would have been playing one of the best games ever made. They would have been fine. No problems or anything. That's uh, Go ahead. Go ahead, Jenny. Uh, yeah, I'm going to save this conversation for me and Cody because we're not going to talk about the video games, but I did want to talk about the plumbing and whether or not it's actually effective to shove rags down the hole as a method of I, I don't know what he was doing. It almost seemed like he wanted, he willed the flooding to come back rather than helping it because it was dry at one point. Harry, do you want to you want to fight over this? How do you how do you want to do this, Harry? We can, uh, we can have mean, it out. Listen, man, I get paid to talk about plumbing. You want you want me to talk about plumbing? I got to see some. <laughs> got to see some green, if you know what I mean. Here's the deal. Yes, Harry has written a lot of plumbing blogs, accurately describing how to properly uh, plumb. Uh, and I am just a, I am, uh, you know, I'm an, I'm a student of life. I've just had to plumb lots of things, uh, plunger lots of things over the it, years. It and took, I do it, took, say, it took, it took you three times to install a plastic bidet at our apartment. No, hold up. I'm talking specifically about unclogging things. All right. Now let's hold on there. You want to talk about me, uh, installing bidet? That's a different conversation. I want to, I want to talk about the most popular plumber and my friend Mario. Okay. Look. We're back to video games. Look, Atze's plunging uh, technique here is off for a few specific reasons that Harry and I can probably go into. One, he is using a cup plunger, which is what you want to use on drains. You don't want to use the... uh, A lot of people use cup plungers on their toilets. You're not really supposed to. You should should use one of the plungers that's more of like a diamond shape that has... The the accordion one? Uh, Yeah, like an accordion accordion or a flange. Yeah, a a flange plunger. Uh, You do want to use those on the toilet, although you can use a cup. I use a cup. It works fine, but it's not the best. Any drain, you do want to use a cup plunger. uh, Because what you want to do is you want to create that seal around the flat surface, uh, and then you want to uh, kind of lift it up and down. Now, his his general technique isn't bad, right? Okay, because he's pushing it, and then he's pulling the entire plunger off of the surface, breaking the seal. You want to do that with drains because it brings the clog back up. You don't want to do that with toilets because in toilets you want to push the clog all the way back down and flush it out. Uh, it, he is doing it also correctly where there is a good amount of liquid on the floor. You do want that because if you do without any sort of liquid, then you, all you're doing is pushing air. It's not really you don't, Yeah, you clog. don't have a seal, right? You don't have a, you're yeah. not creating a vacuum seal. So if you're doing, yeah, if you have a sink that's clogged or anything at home, make sure to fill it up with a little bit of water before you use the cup plunger uh, in order to properly create that seal. Anyway, I can answer any questions. Uh, you guys have that later. I think... Uh... I think there's just one thing left to this episode. Um, and it's a little segment that we like to uh, call on our friend Cody for. Uh, it's called Cody's Noties. Cody's Noties. Hi, uh, everyone. I'm Cody. I've got two primary noties. Um, the first one is a little absurd, and I apologize in advance. Uh, the second one's going to be more of a palate cleanser. Uh, so that'll be nice. So 
watching um, the first scene where we're introduced to Ase's uh, living situation, it it made me think of something, and uh, I'm a little ashamed to say I got sucked into a YouTube black hole um, about a week before watching Rebels of the Neon God. Um, it was, in fact, an old uh, MTV Cribs episode, um, and the focus of this episode was the um, a few of the uh, men from Jackass, uh, the television program, which some of our listeners may be familiar with. The gentlemen um, from Jackass. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, as they're famously known. Uh, the first, uh, the the first unit that we're shown is is Stevo's, and it's it, it's character. It's it's a very modest, is maybe a generous uh, adjective, but it's it's a modest. Uh, apartment, um, not, you know, no art on the walls. It's it, everything is white. Um, and Steve-O is, is sort of through the, you know, his six minutes where, where we're looking into his life. He's set up as someone who obviously doesn't put a lot of, uh, financial support into his, uh, his, you know, his apartment, um, his living situation. Um, you know, presumably he's getting that, that MTV money, uh, but it's just going elsewhere, whether it's into things that are more hedonistic pleasures or, or immediate gratification. I don't know too much about Steve-O's life admittedly. Um, but we're shown this, this college sophomore's apartment, uh, basically. And, and with the camera on him, he, uh, and his roommate and Johnny Knoxville, who was also there, shout out to Johnny Knoxville, come on the pod. Um, they're, earnestly destroying things in the apartment uh whether it's furniture or walls there's like skate ramps built into the kitchen um and it got me thinking about that that performative element that we've been talking about on and off within this episode and then furthermore the fact that uh mtv is the one showing uh one of their their key star (laughs) the stars of their of their channel in you know the mid or early 2000s or or whenever um you know we're showing sivo's place bam margera has a really nice house um uh uh, ryan dunn lives in a basement and they conclude with chris pontius who's living out of a truck so the the gall of mtv yeah the the gall of mtv to you know, there again, we're, we're, that MTV money going into uh, you know the the efforts of these people, and then showing this is how our stars live here. Viewer ogle at the lifestyle of of these people who are performatively, um, you know, showcasing themselves and their habitats uh, for you um, for your enjoyment. Um, it was, I, I guess, a version of that that performative interplay that I wasn't really expecting, but I got anyway through MTV's. Uh, sort of voyeurism. Um, if any of you are interested in looking at that, uh, that's a classic MTV Cribs app. I'm using uh, air quotes, but it's a podcast. Classic uh, MTV Cribs episode, Cribs episode that is on YouTube. Um, and to bring us back to reality, um, I wanted to shout out uh, a movie that is one of my uh, has been one of my favorite quarantine finds, um, and that's Eat Drink Man Woman. Um, Chen Chao nice. uh, Jung, uh, who plays Ase. Uh, and um, Wang Yuwen, who plays Akwe in in Rebels of the Neon God, they're both in Eat Drink Man Woman. Um, and funnel, uh, funnily enough, uh, Chen Chao Jung's character in Eat Drink Man Woman is set up as someone who is well off financially and uh, doesn't really show it. Um, we don't really get the ins and outs of how he has the money he has, but uh, those two pair up in that movie too. Um, and I just thought that was a cute sort of 
uh, pseudo foil um, to specifically his character in uh, in Neon God. Uh, watch Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. I guess that's also my recommendation for the episode. It's uh, it's a podcast, so you can't tell. But I'm giving you a thumbs up for that for those noties, Cody. I didn't Great know noties, Cody. I didn't know that Eat, Drink, Man, Woman was an Ang Lee film. Uh, yeah. a prestigious director of The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, one of okay. the best. Very well known. Okay. Uh, I have some some Harry's noties, which is maybe Whoa. unusual. But we already talked about the plumbing a lot, so thank you, Aaron. Everything Aaron <laughs> said was was deeply correct. So his his student of his student I, of life plumbing experience has served him well. Uh, congratulations, Aaron, for speaking for such a long time without being wrong. Uh, unusual, <laughs> man. I didn't, even, I didn't even talk about how you properly uh, unclog the toilet, which is my my biggest take. But anyway, I'll I'll leave it. Uh, so, um, the other things that we should talk about, I have to talk about the bugs in this movie. Um, in the first scene, establishing, uh, establishing our protagonist in his room, he stabs what I thought was a German cockroach. They're sort of the most, um, iconic looking cockroach. If you think of a cockroach, you're probably thinking of a German cockroach. It was of a very good size, which makes a lot of sense seeing as how Taipei is a big city. Um, the bigger the city, the bigger cockroaches can grow because they have easier access to resources. It is worth noting that the reason a cockroach like that would have come into his room is to get out of the rain, um, that has been falling constantly and so there's sort of a um a thematic tie between the um the raising water that uh um cody you had pointed out um ase at first seems relatively nonplussed by it sets up uh it or foreshadows these characters um interactions and the conflict between them when sao kang is very much plussed uh, by the German cockroach and tries to stab it. Um, so that that was relatively accurate um, depictions. I don't think that a German cockroach could cling to the side of the window in the manner in which it did after uh, Sao Kang threw it out, but that itself is sort of speaking to the, the almost magical realist quality of said cockroach and how it represents something that he just can't shake, a restlessness that he just can't throw off, even if it is... Uh, um, capable of things that an ordinary German cockroach wouldn't be capable of. Um, and then we we already talked a little bit about uh, Street Fighter Two finally and Terminator Two. Street Fighter Two uh, was probably the biggest arcade game ever, and so it makes a lot of sense to see it here. Um, it it was it sort of revolutionized the social aspects of um, arcades like this. Uh, it's it's also a Japanese game, which sort of ties into the interesting Japanese motif that, right. that runs throughout this ga- this also, um, movie. Also, like self actualization and finding one's identity, it is uh, it is uh, easy to learn, difficult to master. It's very difficult to master, very difficult. Uh, or even or even be uh, pa- passingly good at, as I found out over and over again. Oh, I fucking uh, suck at Street Fighter. <laughs> I actually, yeah. I actually, if we want to do quiz time really quick, I did find found a list. If nobody else Google's it uh, of the top ten highest grossing arcade games of all time from the US. Here we Gamer. go, baby. This uh, is why you are on the podcast. Street Fighter Two slash Champion Edition uh, is number three. Wait, 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 wait. Slash slash like a combined both of those games. Uh so they were two different editions, two different cabinets. Champion Edition had some extra characters and a few different right. moves. But, but when you say that Street Fighter 2 slash Champion Edition yes, is... Yes, they're combined. It, the, okay, so that 
It was like, like it was like my, an update. Yeah. It was how you updated a an arcade cabinet. It's like, okay, we're putting out a champion. Oh, I know, bro. I know that DLC wasn't a thing in 92. Just yeah, keep going. Just making sure. Well, our audience might not. Okay, so that is number three. Cabinet sold, that was 200,000. Revenue by 1995 was about 2.3 billion. Uh, inflation adjusted. I don't know when this article came out, but that's about 3.5 billion. Does anybody want to guess the number two and number one games? Uh, highest grossing arcade cabinets. The pretty is, is, uh, is DDR on there? Uh, I would imagine not on the top 10. Let me double check. No. Interesting. Okay. Uh, no. P- punch out. Nope. You, you, when you, no. All right, no. go. I mean, is it, is it something boring like Tetris? Uh, yeah, like, it, it like, is. Well, yeah. no, to, first of all, Tetris is not boring, but no, number two is Space Invaders, which does suck total ass, but, uh, that cabinet, cabinet sold for that was 300. Uh, sixty thousand. That inflation adjusted dollars is six point six billion. Uh, the number one that's Pac Man. It's Pac Man, baby. You gotta go, Pac Man. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, four hundred thousand. It had cabinets. to be. That's that I seemed mean too easy. Bad. I meant boring is in sort of you know. Well, you're uh, right. You're right. I, I I never want to play Space Invaders again. I'm good on Space Invaders, but I'll play Pac Man any day of the week. Cool. Uh, do we have any other noties? Uh, cool. I have some recommendations. If we all have recommendations, Jenny, do you have any Jenny's noties? Uh, the last noty that I haven't spoken about, um, I mean, we mentioned the protractor earlier. I like this idea that, um, like this whole fallacy that you would ever use a protractor when studying, like what, what is this? He's carrying it around. Like it's the <laughs> most useless, like school equipment list that you would define. Like, I can't think about using a protractor. Yeah, he is studying. Uh, this is d- definitely a political element of the film that I missed, but did anybody notice when he cuts, when he punches the window and he breaks the window and blood drips on his homework? Does anybody know what he's studying? Oh, is it? I, they were maps, so is it it's a like... a map of um, Taiwan, yes. Yeah, Taiwan blood drips over ROC the map of Taiwan. Versus, uh, the Democratic Republic of China, whatever they that's the, the That's the good is. stuff. There's some political thing there, and I did yeah. be by. But, is yeah. he studying city planning? <laughs> Could have been. Aha! We found the angle, everybody. <laughs> uh, I still want... I, I guess my recommendation is uh, his motorbike, Her Island. It has few similarities to this movie in terms of theme, I think, but mostly this is another in a short string of movies that I've watched that make me want to buy a motorcycle and drive it over urban and suburban Asia. Um, so that's that's my recommendation. Uh, I can go next. I have three recommendations. The first one is obvious uh, to long-time listeners. Lol, we don't have any long-time listeners. But uh, probably watch Scorpio Rising. Uh, it's it's really good. It's sort of the, in my opinion, the iconic sort of can't-miss commentary on uh, the intersection between uh, motorcycles and hypermasculinity and, and queerness. Uh, that's Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising. Uh, that's very good. Um, uh, Jenny and I just watched Taipei Story. Um, that's that's a movie that doesn't have a ton to do with this movie uh, thematically, except that in some ways uh, it's it's also about disaffected youth and it's also about um, the the legacy and deterministic um, future of a city and the ways in which the the cities that we built end up not being built f- for us. Um, that's a really good movie. Um, sort of a, a pretty good, it turns out companion piece to this one. Um, Taiwanese directors were, were thinking of some, some similar things. Um, and then finally, uh, another Jenny recommendation. So shout outs, I guess, uh, this, this movie struck me as really similar to a girl walks home alone at night. 
Um, except yes. that a girl walks home alone at night is, uh, it ends up in a, in a strangely much more optimistic place than this one does. Um, and I like the, the place that this one ends up a lot more, but those, those movies are both sort of about the corrosive influence of a city. Um, in a girl walks home alone at night, they're, they're literally inhabitants of a place called bad city. Uh, and that, that's a very important part of that movie. Uh, and it struck me as, as, as a similar, um, narrative stakes and and theme uh to this one in a lot of ways uh and all three of those movies are very good uh so you should see them i guess uh yeah this uh, really really quick um this was going to be a surprise for later but since harry brought the, uh, a girl walks home alone at night um i did just pick up that poster uh doing some stress oh, shopping yeah. online so i can't wait to to hang that one up in my place uh that movie rules for what it's worth uh, yes, the movie does indeed rule. Um, I guess if we're giving out recommendations, I mentioned Smithereens earlier on, and that's um, a 1982 film from Susan Seidelman, and that has it's extremely vibey uh, with the New York punk scene, and it just has a bunch of like mid 20 year old folks um, like struggling to find some kind of identity, and also the idea of escaping out of the scene, and I think it um, has some nice narrative parallels and is just yeah like look at this like um like kind of the swirl the dank environment of the city and how people like just cling to um being there or existing or finding themselves at all uh i'll recommend uh i mentioned it earlier but uh the book the savage detectives by roberto bolano it's about young uh horny dudes doing young horny dude shit in uh mexico or you Good. could just listen to Try Love. Anybody? All right. Uh, well, then I will sign us off with a quick thank you very much for listening to Try Love. Uh, this has been our episode about um, a movie Rebels called Rebels of the, of the Neon God. God. Called Rebels of the Neon God. Uh, and we've had our, uh, uh, we've, we've had a great time talking to our friend, uh, Jenny Ackerson about this movie. Thank you again very much, Jenny, for joining us. Thank you for having me on again. It's a, it's a treat to talk to friends about movies. And I also like that the, the literal translation for the movie title is Teenage Neza, which I would have also appreciated that title. That's, wow. (laughs) That's sick. Yo. I would have loved to watch uh, Teenage Nessa in 1992 in Taipei, if I understood any of the words that people would have been saying without subtitles. Uh, thank you again very much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at, I'm forgetting your at, Jenny. I believe at Jack Ackerson Jenny. Ackerson Jenny on Twitter. Uh, you can follow the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema uh, and, follow, and uh, check out the website for ways to support them during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, uh, first donate to your local food bank or some essential resources for your neighborhood and for your community. Uh, but if you have something left over, check out the Trilons, um, the numerous ways you can support the Trilon as a nonprofit. Uh, Cody. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I wanted to note really quick, uh, cause I don't think it's been brought up. Uh, the reason we watched rebels of the neon God was because it was a recommendation from John Moret, the film programmer at the Trilon cinema, uh, for more, uh, recommendations like that uh, that you can get each week. Um, subscribe to their newsletter that comes out on Tuesdays and John will be uh, sending out movie note, uh, recommendations as well as recommendations from from others in uh, film circles um, just while we're trying to get through this. Do that. 
Uh, in the meantime, you can find me, Jason Daphnis, on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, I've been Cody. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to Rebels of the Neon Pod. <laughs> <laughs>